Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. I'm Megan Cole, your host, and Writing the Coast is where you can go to hear conversations with the authors and illustrators whose books have been nominated for the annual prizes. Now, if you've been wondering who the heck won these prizes, well, I have some updates for you on the gala. The gala was scheduled to take place uh, this spring. Unfortunately, it did have to be cancelled along with the tour that also happens this time of year where shortlisted authors travel around the region to different communities. But as with most things, the prizes is going digital and it will be available online on September 19th. We're excited to have Sheila Rogers as the host for the ceremony and look forward to sharing it with everyone in the fall. But on to the present. On this episode, I had the privilege of catching up with a writer who I met a few years ago when she visited Powell River to talk about her writing and her book, Pride, Celebrating Diversity and Community. Since then, Robin Stevenson, who is the prolific writer of I think 26 books, I counted, and I think that was what it was. Since she visited here, Robin has written books like Kid Activist, which is about people such as Harvey Milk, Helen Keller, Nelson Mandela. She also wrote a board book called Pride Colors and My Body, My Choice, which is nominated for the Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. My Body, My Choice is a teen book that presents the history of the pro-choice movement in Canada and the U.S. It includes stories about the abortion caravan, as well as quotes from young activists fighting for reproductive rights around the world. In this conversation, Robin and I talked about the approach she took with the book and how she included the activist voices. And also, we talked a little bit about what happened when a book event she had scheduled for a school in Chicago was cancelled due to backlash because of the inclusion of LGBTQ2S plus figures in her book, Kid Activist. Robin starts our conversation off with a reading from My Body, My Choice. All right, I'm going to read from my book, My Body, My Choice, The Fight for Abortion Rights. And one of the things that I found interesting when I was writing the book was the different history in Canada and in the United States. Um, Originally, when I started writing it, I was writing about the history of the fight for abortion rights, and I realized I was going to have to separate it um, out and and cover the two countries um, separately because it was such a different different history. Um, And what I found was that I actually knew a lot more of the American history than I did the Canadian. Um, so I wanted to read this section from the um, Canadian history. Um, it's a story about the abortion caravan, which is one that isn't as well known as I think it should be. So I'm going to read from that. The abortion caravan. While Henry Morgenthaler was fighting in the courts, feminist activists across the country were building an abortion rights movement, working to sway public opinion and pressure the government. In the spring of 1970, a small group of women set out from Vancouver, British Columbia in a yellow Oldsmobile convertible, a Volkswagen bus, and a pickup truck. They drove across the country, gathering women and media attention along the way. The organizers called themselves the Vancouver Women's Caucus, and they were determined to put the issue of abortion on the national agenda. 
they reached out to other women's liberation groups across Canada who organized events and rallies in their own communities. As the abortion caravan rolled through BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario, momentum built. In Ottawa, signs went up. The women are coming. Abortion caravan, May 9, 1 p.m., Parliament Hill. One of the Ottawa organizers was a young woman called Jackie Larkin, who was part of the Ottawa Women's Liberation Group. Jackie says, The abortion caravan tapped into this long, deep history. All across the country, there were all these women who had had illegal abortions and were ashamed about it. So as the caravan drove through and women heard about it, all these women came out and spoke about their experiences and gave testimonials. It was often the first time they had ever spoken about their abortions. Finally, the abortion caravan arrived in Ottawa, and on Saturday, May 9, about 650 women and 50 men marched to Parliament Hill. At the head of the march, six women carried a black coffin to commemorate the deaths of the estimated 2,000 women who died each year from illegal abortions. The coffin had a coat hanger on top of it to symbolize the lives lost by those who attempted to end their own pregnancies. But the Prime Minister, the Justice Minister and the Health Minister all refused to meet with the women. We were pretty furious because we felt we weren't getting the attention we deserved, Jackie remembers. So we went outside and started to leave the hill, but instead of going back the way we came, we turned onto Sussex Drive and walked right to the Prime Minister's residence, which they weren't expecting at all. We put the coffin right on his steps. About 150 demonstrators from the abortion caravan held a sit-in at Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau's home, but still no government officials would agree to hear their concerns. Pleas for abortion greeted by silence, read the headlines in the Ottawa Citizen. Frustrated by the lack of response from government, the women held a strategy meeting that night. They decided that on Monday they would go into the House of Commons and disrupt Parliament. Jackie recalls, a sympathetic staffer got us passes to get into the gallery, but we had to find clothes. If we had gone in our demonstration clothes, it would have been obvious we were up to something. So we were scrambling through closets to try to find skirts and nylons for everyone so that we could get into the house. And we had to find gloves to cover up the chains and handcuffs we were bringing in. So we got all our good clothes on and pretended we didn't know one another and we spread out around the gallery. We chained ourselves to the seats so they couldn't remove us. And then at three o'clock, we began shouting, free abortion on demand. One woman started the chant, and the rest of us gradually joined in. There were overhead mics that picked it up and amplified our voices, so they couldn't continue. They had to shut down the house for the first time ever. Guards rushed in with wire cutters and hacksaws and dragged the protesters down the corridors and out a side entrance. Lynn Gibson from Winnipeg spoke to a reporter moments after she was thrown out of the building. Few people seem to realize that women are being butchered by quack abortionists and are dying because of this present law, she said. But that lack of awareness was about to change. The women had succeeded in getting the nation's attention. The next day, newspapers across Canada made sure that people knew about the women's action and their cause. Abortion rights were now firmly on the national agenda, and much of the media was supportive. An editorial in the Calgary Herald argued, we are advocating freedom, and this includes the freedom of a woman to decide what she does with her own body, to decide whether or not she shall bring a child into the world. The abortion caravan remains one of the most extraordinary acts of civil disobedience in Canadian history. Thanks so much, Robin.
No problem. I like you said. I what really struck me as I was reading the book was, you know, I I thought I knew, but until I was reading through the book, I I really had no idea about some of the history you touched on in in the pages. Yeah, I learned a lot from from writing it for sure. In your um your author's note, you mentioned your experience in social work. How did that impact the way you approached the material in the book? Um, I think it was part of where my interest came from. Just that when I when I was a social worker, um, I did speak with many women who were choosing to end pregnancies, and certainly saw firsthand how important it was for people to have that choice. So I think when I you know think about um, that right being threatened, it, it's very, uh, you know, I think about all those people and it just feels very real and very immediate. Um, so I think it, it certainly was something that influenced me in deciding to write the book and also working in that area at a time when abortion providers were coming under attack um, and there was a lot of threats and violence towards abortion providers in the community I worked in, which uh, I think also motivated me to, to want to um, talk about the issue and, and raise awareness. And, and I think it's really important for um, young people to know more about the issue, about the um, sort of current threats to reproductive rights um, and to the history and how hard people have fought for the right um, to be able to make decisions about their own bodies. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, there's so much you could you can touch on on a topic like this and I was really amazed how much you were able to include, but how did you make that decision about what you needed to have in there and what maybe could have been mentioned and left for like broader research for the reader? Yeah, yeah, it was challenging because it is a huge topic and I did decide to focus in some ways fairly narrowly on abortion specifically, even though abortion is really just one part of the larger issues around um, sexual and reproductive health and rights, but trying to, uh, you know, look at it more broadly. I felt like I was going to be writing a book that was going to be, you know, a thousand pages long. Um, and I wanted to have space to um, include, you know, personal stories, stories from young activists, stories from around the world. So I did choose to keep the focus fairly narrowly on abortion rights rather than looking at the larger um, spectrum of sexual and reproductive health and rights. I really loved all the the personal accounts and the introduction of the the young activists as well. How did you meet those those folks and go about including them in the book? Yeah, that was one of the really fun parts of writing. It actually was all the people that I met, um, and the people who were working uh, in this area are so passionate about their work, and so. You know, I would talk to one person who would say, oh, you know, you should talk to this other person and actually and let me put you in touch with this person. And it just kind of um, uh, spread out from there with people helping me make those connections um, around the world. So, yeah, it was um, amazing. Some some I connected with online. There was a group of um, young activists from Ireland that I actually connected with through Twitter. They had started a school students for choice group. Um, and I reached out to them directly. But many of the organizations of um, youth advocates, many of the activists who are doing that work, and people just helped me connect to other people and it just kind of um, took off. What's the response been from, from teens who've read your book about reading about those activists in other part of, parts of the world? Um, well, I haven't had a lot of opportunities to talk to teens about the book. Unfortunately, it's uh, 
I haven't, um, I've done a lot of school visits about my other books, um, in particular, um, my book about pride, but I have not done any school visits yet about my body, my choice. So I haven't had a lot of opportunities to talk with groups of teens. The teens that I have heard from online um, certainly have been very grateful to have access to, I think, you know, accurate information, um, really interested to learn the history and really enjoyed reading stories from people their own age who are taking action. And then I've heard from, yeah, some, some middle school and high school students who um, the book's obviously been important to. But yeah, I haven't had a lot of opportunities yet to, to talk with young people about the book. Because it was a book for teens and not maybe adults or even young adults, uh, what kind of considerations were you making about the direction of the book? Well, I, I wanted it to include voices of young people. So um, I wanted it to um, include, you know, experiences of, of young people who have had abortions, um, who are working as activists, who are concerned about the issues. So I certainly wanted youth to see themselves represented in the book, and I wanted it to include, um, you know, a diverse group of, of, of young people. In terms of the, the content, I don't think I wrote it that differently than I would have if I were writing for adults. Um, I think that, you know, I wanted it to be accessible um, and I wanted it to be honest um, and I wanted it to, you know, to respect the reader's ability to think for themselves about the issues. Um, but I think probably because it was for young people, I wanted it to be visually engaging. So, for example, um, I was able to connect with uh, somebody who had edited a book of comics about abortion rights that was originally done as a, a fundraiser, I believe. And she put me in touch with um, a number of the artists and people, several of them agreed to allow me to include um, some of their comics in the book. So, so there's some, a lot of photographs as well, um, just lots of uh, Lots of lots of color. So I think because it was for young people, yeah, trying to make it more visually engaging. But in terms of the actual content, I think if I was writing for adults, I would have included very similar things. Something I noted, and then you you mentioned in your author's note at the end was the desire to make the book a conversation starter, and it really plants seeds for these kinds of conversations about racism and economic disparity and feminism. Um, how have you seen seen this be a catalyst for those conversations? Are you thinking about other books that could kind of be a spinoff from from this one? Uh, I haven't thought of other books that that could be a spinoff, or at least not ones that I you know I'm intending to to write myself. Um, absolutely, I think that there's the conversations that could come from it could go in many different directions. Um, the history of abortion rights is so intertwined with the history of racism, and that was something that I certainly um, ended up being more central to the book than I realized when I began writing it. Um, but there's certainly yeah, lots of issues that uh, I think you know would be good for um, classroom discussion. And, and I hope that it's a book that will get used in schools and that people will have those conversations. I think it's still a pretty taboo subject and uh, a, a challenging one for schools. Um, but I'm very much hoping that it will be used as a jumping off point for those conversations. I was at one school a while last year uh, talking about one of my novels, but one of the teachers came up to me afterwards and uh, 
told me that she had read My Body, My Choice um, and been really moved because she had had an abortion when she was younger that she hadn't really been able to tell um, anybody about at the time um, and had sort of kept it a secret for, for a long time and uh, really wanted young people to and to know that this is not a decision that they should have to, um, you know, to keep secret. And so she had talked with her class about the book and uh, and used it to, um, you know, to, to begin some conversations, which I was really happy to hear about. But um, but I don't know how um, how schools are are using the book or whether it is being used to start those conversations in classrooms. I hope it is. I really have admired your books. I, I love your Pride book and um, remember when you were in Powell River talking about that mm-hmm. one. And it's I think it's so important to have these books available to to young folks to get that information in their hands. But I know in the fall you uh, you had an event canceled in Chicago and I was wondering mm. what that experience was like for you and and uh, how you navigated that afterwards. Yeah, yeah, that was very that was very interesting. I think the thing with a book like My Body, My Choice, The Fight for Abortion Rights, is that it's it's very clear what the book is about, and I think that's probably why I haven't actually got any school visit invitations um, to talk about this book. Is that uh, um, schools are aware that this is is going to potentially be a challenge topic where they they may have challenges. But my book, Kid Activists, was not a book where I really anticipated any controversy or pushback. Um, it's a, a series of biographies of, of well-known activists and uh, I was on a publisher organized tour in the states I had just spent a week in California and then was in Illinois and one of the schools that I was scheduled to speak at canceled my visit the night before because the 16 activists in the book included Harvey Milk and Janet Mock so a gay rights activists and a transgender activist and I was very surprised. I was very taken aback that that happened. It's a book for, you know, eight to 12 year olds. It's about the childhoods of these people. Um, like I said, that it wasn't something that I had really seen as being at all controversial. Um, but I wrote a letter to the school uh, district, the school board and school superintendent to um, express why I thought it was damaging and harmful for them to make a decision like that, to, to exclude um, this book and the speaker because of LGBTQ um, content um, and that I thought it sent a really harmful message to their students. And that letter um, I shared on my website and uh, it did get shared quite widely and got a fair bit of media coverage in Illinois. And I was invited back to Illinois by a state representative, Tara Costa Howard, who had got some calls about it in her office um, and uh, wanted to, me to come back to Illinois and do a public event. So I ended up going back a couple weeks, a few weeks later, and um, doing a bookstore event, a bookstore signing, um, which was packed. Um, lots of parents brought their kids um, from that district and neighboring districts, um, and then doing a public talk as well. Um, and again, it, there was a, a huge amount of support. I think there's obviously, you know, there was a few parents who had objected to the content, but there were many, many, many more who really wanted to see their schools be more more inclusive, more progressive, um, wanted their kids to um, learn about the history of LGBTQ rights, wanted, didn't want to see activists excluded from history, you know, because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. 
Um, and Illinois was, is in the process of, um, they have a, a new law coming into effect in July, which will actually require LGBTQ inclusive history um, to be taught. So it was an issue that I think was uh, on people's minds and being discussed anyway. So yeah, so I think that, you know, it, it, it did end up, I did end up also going back um, a few months later and speaking at a teaching conference in Illinois, um, particularly around, you know, including LGBTQ content in the curriculum, um, the history of pride, um, the history of the fight for LGBTQ rights. So I think, you know, in the end, as a result of the challenge to the book, I did end up having many more opportunities to speak with people about the issues. So I think it was a, there was certainly some good that came out of it. I was really struck by that because I remember, I think maybe it was you shared it on Twitter and I saw that article and I I think sometimes as as writers, we can often forget that our work can be activism in itself and uh, that it it's important in keeping those voices heard and and pushing back sometimes. And sometimes I think we think of our book going out in the world and then forget the life it leads once it yeah. leaves our hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you all, the, the part that you're aware of is only kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? Like you, you know, you get occasional emails from, from readers, but um, really you don't actually know what's happening with the book or how it's being used a lot of the time. So yeah, it's, it is, it's very interesting. I wanted, speaking of how, how your books are used, I remember when you were here in Powell River and uh, you did an event at the high school and at the end, a young student came up to you and I believe she was in tears. I may be remembering that wrong, but yeah, she yeah. was just so overwhelmed um, to be in your presence, to get to hear you read and speak. She was a huge fan. Um, I know there's a lot of you know, you get that pushback from people, you know, like you saw in Illinois, but there are so many more people like that student. How do those interactions affect the work you do and the books you decide to write? Yeah, absolutely. I remember that student very well. I was I was really moved by that, actually. Yeah, that was that was quite lovely. I, yeah, I think it, it it's just a really good reminder. I, you know, it's really easy when you're sitting at the computer working on a book to forget um about, like you said, the life that they, they, they lead when they go out into the world and that they actually do um, mean something to people, that they do matter to people. So it's a good reminder of, of why I write and, and who I write for and that, um, you know, there's not going to be one book that's for everybody, but for the people that, uh, that there will be some people for whom a, a particular book really matters and is really important um, and really makes a difference. And um, having those experiences where you're reminded of that, I think, is is really important. What are what are you working on now, Robin? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> I'm doing the edits for the a book that's a follow up to Kid Activists, so it's in that same series published by Quirk. The series is called Kid Legends, and the new one that I've got coming out in spring 2021 is a um, focuses on the, the childhoods of um, inventors and entrepreneurs. It's called Kid Innovators. So that one's just in edits at the moment. Um, I have a picture book coming out in the spring as well um, with Orca, which has a um, pride theme. Um, and I'm really excited about that because it's the first book that I've done, which is uh, illustrated by an artist. Like I have a, a board book, but that's photographs and I have 
ghost journey, which is art created from photographs, but this one's actually the illustrator who's, who's creating the, um, the art for the book. So I'm really excited to see that come together. I'm also working on a adult mystery and I'm just starting a middle grade novel. Oh, wow. You're always very busy. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to have a number of projects on the go at one time, which I, I don't always think is a good thing. But um, I, I always seem to be vowing that I'm not going to do it that way next time. But I think because publishing is such a slow process, yeah. it's kind of inevitable that you end up with multiple projects in different stages of completion. Is that the first uh, adult book you've worked on? Yeah, I've, do I've done some short stories for adults. Um, and actually a couple of my teen novels began as short stories for adults and then kind of grew into teen novels. Um, but yeah, it's the first adult. Actually, that's not true. I have another half finished adult novel somewhere in my computer, which I've kind of abandoned. But uh, yeah, no, this one's a mystery and um, kind of mystery thriller. And I was having a lot of fun with it. I've, I've started it a couple of years ago and then had to put it aside because of deadlines for other projects that actually had contracts. Um, but I would like to go back and try and finish it, even if it just is the book that kind of, you know, that I, I learned some stuff about how to write a mystery. And even if it doesn't end up being one I'm, I'm happy with, I think I'll, I'll learn a lot from writing it. And I really enjoy reading mysteries and thrillers. And uh, so, yeah, I think it'd be fun to, to try writing some. Any inspirations from, you know, mysteries or TV show mysteries for that book? Uh, no, not particularly. I mean, I read, I enjoy reading mysteries and thrillers. And, you know, I mean, as a kid, I, I loved mysteries. I was remember being about sort of 12 and reading like every Agatha Christie novel out there. Um, it was over 100 of them. And, uh, you know, so I've always really enjoyed reading mysteries. Um, I think that, you know, I tend to, to start with character in my writing more so than plot. And I feel like with mysteries, I need to take a different approach and be more um perhaps more of a more of a planner um that my usual kind of making it up as i go along approach is probably not really well designed for <laughs> writing mysteries uh, so i feel like yeah i feel like you know i'll learn i'll, I'll it'll, it'll make me focus on plot i'll learn some stuff about writing and um and who knows maybe it'll it'll end up being a book that uh, is um worth sending out and trying to find a publisher for but either way i'm enjoying the process Thanks so much to Robin for being on the podcast. It was such a pleasure to talk with you again. And thanks to you for listening and supporting Writing the Coast. It really means a lot that you take the time to subscribe and to listen to these episodes. If you're interested in finding out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to check out our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. Next time on the podcast, you'll hear my conversation with author Yasuko Tan. Her book, Mistakes to Run With, is nominated for the new prize this year, the Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. Until we meet again over the podcast airwaves, I hope you enjoy the sunshine wherever you find yourself, support your local booksellers, and read some great books.